Speech by Herbert Asquith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Vermont. Speech given to the House of Commons on August 6, 1914, by Herbert Asquith. In asking the committee to agree to the resolution which Mr. Whitley has just read from the chair, I do not propose, because I do not think it is in any way necessary, to traverse again the ground which was covered by my right honorable friend, the Foreign Secretary, two or three nights ago. He stated, and I do not think any of the statements he made are capable of answer, and certainly have not yet been answered, the grounds upon which, with the utmost reluctance and with infinite regret, His Majesty's Government have been compelled to put this country in a state of war, with what for many years, and indeed generations past, has been a friendly power. But, sir, the papers, which have since been presented to Parliament, and which are now in the hands of honorable members, will, I think, show how strenuous, how unremitting, how persistent, even when the last glimmer of hope seemed to have faded away, were the efforts of my right honorable friend to secure for Europe an honorable and a lasting peace. Everyone knows, in the great crisis which occurred last year in the east of Europe, it was largely, if not mainly, by the acknowledgment of all Europe, due to the steps taken by my right honorable friend, that the area of the conflict was limited, and that, so far as the great powers are concerned, peace was maintained. If his efforts upon this occasion have, unhappily, been less successful, I am certain that this house and the country, and I will add posterity and history, will accord to him what is, after all, the best tribute that can be paid to any statesman, that, never derogating for an instant or by an inch from the honor and interests of his own country, he has striven, as few men have striven, to maintain and preserve the greatest interest of all countries. Universal peace. These papers which are now in the hands of honorable members, show something more than that. They show what were the terms which were offered to us in exchange for our neutrality. I trust that not only the members of this House, but all our fellow subjects everywhere, will read the communications, will read, learn, and mark the communications which passed only a week ago today between Berlin and London in this matter. The terms by which it was sought to buy our neutrality are contained in the communication made by the German Chancellor to Sir Edward Goshen on the 29th July, number 85 of the published papers. I think I must refer to them for a moment. After alluding to the state of things as between Austria and Russia, Sir Edward Goshen goes on. He the German Chancellor, then proceeded to make the following strong bid for British neutrality. He said that it was clear, so far as he was able to judge the main principle which governed British policy, that Great Britain would never stand by and allow France to be crushed in any conflict there might be. That, however, was not the object at which Germany aimed. 
provided that neutrality of great britain were certain every assurance would be given to the british government that the imperial government let the committee observe these words aimed at no territorial acquisition at the expense of france should they prove victorious in any war that might ensue sir edward gaution proceeded to put a very pertinent question i questioned his excellency about the french colonies what are the french colonies they mean every part of the dominions and possessions of france outside the geographical area of europe and he said that he was unable to give a similar undertaking in that respect let me come to what in my mind personally has always been the crucial and almost the governing consideration namely the position of the small states as regards holland however his excellency said that so long as germany's adversaries respected the integrity and neutrality of the netherlands germany was ready to give his majesty's government an assurance that she would do likewise then we come to belgium it depended upon the action of france what operations germany might be forced to enter upon in belgium but when the war was over belgian integrity would be respected if she had not sided against germany let the committee observe the distinction between those two cases in regard to holland it was not only independence and integrity but also neutrality but in regard to belgium there was no mention of neutrality at all nothing but an assurance that after the war came to an end the integrity of belgium would be respected then his excellency added ever since he had been chancellor the object of his policy had been to bring about an understanding with england he trusted that these assurances the assurances i have read out to the house might form the basis of that understanding which he so much desired what does that amount to let me just ask the committee i do so not with the object of inflaming passion certainly not with the object of exciting feeling against germany but i do so to vindicate and make clear the position of the british government in this matter what did that proposal amount to in the first place it meant this that behind the back of france they were not made a party to these communications we should have given if we had assented to that a free license to germany to annex in the event of a successful war the whole of the extra european dominions and possessions of france what did it mean as regards belgium when she addressed as she has addressed in these last few days her moving appeal to us to fulfil our solemn guarantee of her neutrality what reply should we have given what reply should we have given to that belgian appeal we should have been obliged to say that without her knowledge we had bartered away to the power threatening her our obligation to keep our plighted word the house has read and the country has read of course in the last few hours the most pathetic appeal addressed by the king of belgium and i do not envy the man who can read that appeal with an unmoved heart belgians are fighting and losing their lives what would have been the position of great britain today in the face of that spectacle if we had assented to this infamous proposal yes and what are we to get in return for the betrayal of our friends and the dishonor of our obligations what are we to get in return a promise nothing more 
a promise as to what germany would do in certain eventualities a promise be it observed i am sorry to have to say it but it must be put upon record given by a power which was at that very moment announcing its intention to violate its own treaty and inviting us to do the same i can only say if we had dallied or temporized we as a government should have covered ourselves with dishonor and we should have betrayed the interests of this country of which we are trustees i am glad and i think the country will be glad to turn to the reply which my right honorable friend made and of which i will read to the committee two of the more salient passages this document number one hundred one of the papers puts on record a week ago the attitude of the british government and as i believe of the british people my right honorable friend says his majesty's government cannot for a moment entertain the chancellor's proposal that they should bind themselves to neutrality on such terms what he asks us in effect is to engage to stand by while french colonies are taken if france is beaten so long as germany does not take french territory as distinct from the colonies from the material point of view my right honorable friend as he always does used very temperate language such a proposal is unacceptable for france without further territory in europe being taken from her could be so crushed as to lose her position as a great power and become subordinate to german policy that is the material aspect but he proceeded altogether apart from that it would be a disgrace for us to make this bargain with germany at the expense of france a disgrace from which the good name of this country would never recover the chancellor also in effect asks us to bargain away whatever obligation or interest we have as regards the neutrality of belgium we could not entertain that bargain either he then says we must preserve our full freedom to act as circumstances may seem to us to require and he added i think in sentences which the committee must appreciate you should add most earnestly that the one way of maintaining the good relations between england and germany is that they should continue to work together to preserve the peace of europe for that object this government will work in that way with all sincerity and good will if the peace of europe can be preserved and the present crisis safely passed my own endeavor will be to promote some arrangement to which germany could be a party by which she could be assured that no aggressive or hostile policy would be pursued against her or her allies by france russia and ourselves jointly or separately i have desired this and worked for it the statement was never more true as far as i could through the last balkan crisis and germany having a corresponding object our relations sensibly improved the idea has hitherto been too utopian to form the subject of definite proposals but if this present crisis so much more acute than any that europe has gone through for generations be safely passed i am hopeful that the relief and reaction which will follow may make possible some more definite rapprochement between the powers than has been possible hitherto that document in my opinion states clearly in temperate and convincing language the attitude of this government 
can any one who reads it fail to appreciate the tone of obvious sincerity and earnestness which underlies it can any one honestly doubt that the government of this country in spite of great provocation and i regard the proposals made to us as proposals which we might have thrown aside without consideration and almost without answer can any one doubt that in spite of great provocation the right honorable gentleman who had already earned the title and no one ever more deserved it of peacemaker of europe persisted to the very last moment of the last hour in that beneficent but unhappily frustrated purpose i am entitled to say and i do so on behalf of this country i speak not for a party i speak for the country as a whole that we made every effort any government could possibly make for peace but this war has been forced upon us what is it we are fighting for everyone knows and no one knows better than the government the terrible incalculable suffering economic social personal and political which war and especially a war between the great powers of the world must entail there is no man amongst us sitting upon this bench in these trying days more trying perhaps than any body of statesmen for a hundred years have had to pass through there is not a man amongst us who has not during the whole of that time had clearly before his vision the almost unequalled suffering which war even in a just cause must bring about not only to the peoples who are for the moment living in this country and in the other countries of the world but to posterity and to the whole prospects of european civilization every step we took we took with that vision before our eyes and with a sense of responsibility which it is impossible to describe unhappily if in spite of all our efforts to keep the peace and with that full and overpowering consciousness of the result if the issue be decided in favor of war we have nevertheless thought it to be the duty as well as the interest of this country to go to war the house may be well assured it was because we believe and i am certain the country will believe that we are unsheathing our sword in a just cause if i am asked what we are fighting for i reply in two sentences in the first place to fulfill a solemn international obligation an obligation which if it had been entered into between private persons in the ordinary concerns of life would have been regarded as an obligation not only of law but of honor which no self-respecting man could possibly have repudiated i say secondly we are fighting to vindicate the principle which in these days when force material force sometimes seems to be the dominant influence and factor in the development of mankind we are fighting to vindicate the principle that small nationalities are not to be crushed in defiance of international good faith by the arbitrary will of a strong and overmastering power i do not believe any nation ever entered into a great controversy and this is one of the greatest history will ever know with a clearer conscience and a stronger conviction that it is fighting not for aggression not for the maintenance even of its own selfish interest but that it is fighting in defense of principles the maintenance of which is vital to the civilization of the world with a full conviction not only of the wisdom and justice 
but of the obligations which lay upon us to challenge this great issue, we are entering into the struggle. Let us now make sure that all the resources, not only of this united kingdom, but of the vast empire of which it is the center, shall be thrown into the scale. And it is that that object may be adequately secured that I am now about to ask this committee, to make the very unusual demand upon it, to give the government a vote of credit of one hundred million pounds. I am not going, and I am sure the committee do not wish it, into the technical distinctions between votes of credit and supplementary estimates and all the rarities and refinements which arise in that connection. There is a much higher point of view than that. If it were necessary, I could justify, upon purely technical grounds, the course we propose to adopt, but I am not going to do so, because I think it would be foreign to the temper and disposition of the committee. There is one thing to which I do call attention, that is, the title and heading of the bill. As a rule in the past, votes of this kind have been taken simply for naval and military operations but we have thought it right to ask the committee to give us its confidence in the extension of the traditional area of votes of credit, so that this money, which we are asking them to allow us to expend, may be applied not only for strictly naval and military operations, but to assist the food supplies, promote the continuance of trade, industry, business, and communications, whether by means of insurance or indemnity against risk or otherwise, for the relief of distress, and generally for all expenses arising out of the existence of a state of war. I believe the committee will agree with us that it was wise to extend the area of the vote of credit so as to include all these various matters. It gives the government a free hand. Of course, the Treasury will account for it, and any expenditure that takes place will be subject to the approval of the House. I think it would be a great pity in fact, a great disaster, if, in a crisis of this magnitude, we were not enabled to make provision, provision far more needed now than it was under the simpler conditions that prevailed in the old days, for all the various ramifications and developments of expenditure which the existence of a state of war between the great powers of Europe must entail on any one of them. I am asking also in my character of Secretary of State for War, a position which I held until this morning, for a supplementary estimate for men for the Army. Perhaps the Committee will allow me for a moment just to say on that personal matter that I took upon myself the office of Secretary of State for War under conditions, upon which I need not go back, but which are fresh in the minds of everyone, in the hope and with the object that the condition of things in the army which all of us deplored might speedily be brought to an end and complete confidence re-established i believe that is the case in fact i know it to be there is no more loyal and united body no body in which the spirit and habit of discipline are more deeply ingrained and cherished than in the british army Glad as I should have been to continue the work of that office, and I would have done so under normal conditions, it would not be fair to the army, it would not be just to the country, that any minister should divide his attention between that department and another, 
still less that the first minister of the crown who has to look into the affairs of all departments and who is ultimately responsible for the whole policy of the cabinet should give as he could only give perfunctory attention to the affairs of our army in a great war i am very glad to say that a very distinguished soldier and administrator in the person of lord kitchener with that great public spirit and patriotism that every one would expect from him at my request stepped into the breach lord kitchener as every one knows is not a politician his association with the government as a member of the cabinet for this purpose must not be taken as in any way identifying him with any set of political opinions he has at a great public emergency responded to a great public call and i am certain he will have with him in the discharge of one of the most arduous tasks that has ever fallen upon a minister the complete confidence of all parties and all opinions i am asking on his behalf for the army power to increase the number of men of all ranks in addition to the number already voted by no less than five hundred thousand i am certain the committee will not refuse its sanction for we are encouraged to ask for it not only by our own sense of the gravity and the necessities of the case but by the knowledge that india is prepared to send us certainly two divisions and that every one of our self-governing dominions spontaneously and unasked has already tendered to the utmost limits of their possibilities both in men and in money every help they can afford to the empire in a moment of need sir the mother country must set the example while she responds with gratitude and affection to those filial overtures from the outlying members of her family i will say no more this is not an occasion for controversial discussion in all that i have said i believe i have not gone either in the statement of our case or in my general description of the provision we think it necessary to make beyond the strict bounds of truth it is not my purpose it is not the purpose of any patriotic man to inflame feeling to indulge in rhetoric to excite international animosities the occasion is far too grave for that we have a great duty to perform we have a great trust to fulfill and confidently we believe that parliament and the country will enable us to do it End of speech. Recording by Daniel Vermont, Osaka, Japan.